Hello, and welcome to In Person, brought to you by Pizabo. In each episode of In Person, we explore the world's most daring events and the people who make them happen. In case you and I haven't already met, I'm Brandon Rafts. I'm very excited to share today's episode with you. We spoke to Carl Vance, the VP of Brand Experience at Rubicon Project. If you haven't heard, Rubicon Project is a leading technology company automating the buying and selling experience of advertising for businesses. All right, here's the lowdown. You see, Carl has a long history of working at events and festivals, from the Shorty Awards to the Lions Festival, Clio Awards, and many others. He's also worked with leading brands like The Hollywood Reporter, Billboard, and Adweek. In 2012, he was named the most innovative event pro by BizBash Media. Now, all that said, Carl absolutely loathes events. No joke. It's very ironic. I know. Uh, more on that in the episode, where we also discuss the quirky expertise of award shows and why you should create events not for your audience, but for your audience's aspirations. Towards the end of our conversation, we spent some time discussing what it takes to push for diversity and representation in events, and Carl's experience doing so. All right, let's get to it. Hi there, Carl. Uh, thanks for joining the show today. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So I'd like to start off today's conversation with a really important question, something that's really close to my heart, and I understand that's something that's close to yours as well, um, dog parks. Yes. Could you, you know, wh what do you think of them? <laughs> well, I have a dog park in my community that is, uh, it's a really great place to go socialize and meet your neighbors and hang out, but it is, um, it is quite the controversial place. Uh, mm. There's, if the dogs don't get into fights, the neighbors tend to get into fights. And I think one of the biggest controversial things is whether or not you rescue a dog, which mine is not rescued. Oh. So if anybody ever asked me where I got my dog, I always just tell them that it, it's it's a rescue because in, I, I don't know <laughs> that, you know I don't know what it is like in the rest of the country, but in Los Angeles, if you get a dog from a breeder, it, there's like this social stigma to it that people just think it's terrible mm -hmm. if you don't go rescue a dog. But the only yeah. problem is in, in LA, the only dogs that you find at the rescue are pit bulls or chihuahuas. And I didn't want a pit bull or a chihuahua. So so, so what did you end up with? I, I got an Australian shepherd. Okay. And the funny part about it is that the coat on the dog is called a blue merle. And if you don't know what an Australian shepherd is, most people think it's a mutt. So uh, if they if they think it's a mix, I just let them believe it. Wow. They, they, they'll usually ask a question like, "Oh, what 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 mix is your dog? Do you know?" And I'll just say, "Yeah, I don't know," <laughs> and just leave it at that. Okay. Well, I guess with that that big question out of the way, uh, we should probably talk about the things that we're really here to talk about, which is the fact that you are the VP of Brand Experience at Rubicon Project. And this is a leading technology company automating the buying and selling of advertising for businesses like Spotify, Reuters, Business Insider, and Financial Times. So to set the stage for the rest of our conversation today, Carl, could you share a little bit more about Rubicon Project and your role at the company there? Yeah, I mean, this is a really difficult one. And this is a question that I get asked by a lot of people, especially if I'm talking to friends and family. <laughs> Trying to explain what Rubicon Project is is kind of difficult, but I think the easiest way to do it is this is kind of like the iTunes for digital advertising. 
So on one side, you have all the agencies that want to buy digital advertising. And on the other side, you have all the publishers like Wall Street Journal, New York Times, USA Today, things like that. And the previous way in which we did business is that somebody from the Wall Street Journal would go call on every single agency and sell a package to them. It could be something as simple as you're going to premiere a movie on Labor Day and they want to do a homepage takeover. You have to do a deal directly with the Wall Street Journal. The way program advertising work is done is it's all automated now. So we are the technology that connects the agency to the publisher so that all this stuff can be done digitally. That's probably the easiest way to say it. In reality, it's very complicated. And we consider ourselves an exchange, very similar to the New York Stock Exchange. And there are a hundred different ways to buy and sell advertising. But if you just think of it as iTunes for digital advertising, it's the easiest way to think about it. So it sounds like you're able to assist organizations with getting ads at a pretty large scale. How does this like compare to something like, say, Google ads? It's pretty similar in the fact that we partner with Google. And using Rubicon is one of the ways that you can transact in buying and selling advertising. And it's the same thing that you would do with Google. So it's funny because in some ways, Google's a competitor to ours, uh, to our company. And, and in other ways, they are one of our partners. Got it. Okay, so as VP brand experience there, how are you assisting Rubicon Project in their mission? Yeah, so I, I think from my um, garbled explanation of what Rubicon is, I think you get the idea. This is a really complicated industry. We need to do an amazing amount of face-to-face because we're constantly explaining to our clients what's new, what's different, what does this mean to them, how can they benefit from it. So we need to spend a lot of time in front of them. So what I'm in charge of is two things. One is I'm in charge of all of those face-to-face client experiences, and I'm also in charge of how our brand is experienced by not only our own people, but our clients as well. I'd say it's part of it is that visual aspect all the graphics you see, you know, logos, colors, look and feel, you know, are we quirky? Are we serious? Are we modern? That kind of thing mixed with being face-to-face. And it, it can be whether we are participating in another major event or producing our own. Got it. Okay. So when it comes to the event side of things, what types of activations, events are you or Rubicon Project typically running? It breaks down really into two nice buckets. One is we're either activating a sponsorship at a major event, like the Consumer Electronics Show or Can Lions, uh, or we're producing our own events. And we get benefit out of doing both of those. So if we're activating at a major event, we're activating there because most of our clients are there and we can set up meetings with them. If we're doing our own event, it's because we want to spend a lot of time really doing deep dives into the technology of what Rubicon is doing and how that impacts our clients. Okay. And which one do you personally find to be more fun between the activations and the hosted events? You know, they can both be fun. Uh, It really depends on the event. But I would say, you know, whenever we produce our own events, especially as an event producer, you get carte blanche, so to speak, that I get to create 
absolutely everything from the ground up. I get to pick the venue. I get to pick the timing. I get to pick the furniture. I get to pick the food. I get to create the experience that our clients have. So if I want that to be very casual, I can make it casual. If I want it to be very upscale, I can do that. If I want to have white glove service for our most important clients, I can do that as well. So for me, obviously producing our own events is is my preference. And the more I have to do, the better. Uh, you know, some people, you know, kind of want to move into a venue where a lot of stuff is already set for them. I don't like that. I like to have a completely blank space so that it can control absolutely every bit of the experience that someone has. Great. And so, I mean, right now it sounds like you're exercising quite a bit of authority when it comes to the strategy of in-person experiences at Rubicon Project. And I understand you have a long history of doing this in other roles. You've worked on a number of award shows and festivals, things like the Shorty Awards, the Clio Awards, uh, as you mentioned, Kent Lines Festival. You've worked there in another capacity, American Association of Advertising Agencies. Could you tell us a little bit more about your journey through these different roles and how they led you to where you are today? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's kind of interesting. I think I have a lot in common with a lot of people that produce events around the world. And that is, I don't know how many people actually go to school to, you know, want to be an event person. I think it's one of these things that you just kind of fall into. Yeah. For me personally, I was unemployed at one point and I was sleeping on a friend's couch and his girlfriend got tired of me sleeping on the couch. So she woke me up one morning and said, you're coming to work with me. And it was for a trade show company. And it was one of those things. I really didn't think that I wanted to do it for a living. You know, they they wound up offering me a full-time job. And I originally turned it down. I didn't, this isn't what I want to do. But when I kind of thought about what is it that I want to do, I wanted to be able to travel. I wanted to, you know, be able to meet people. And there was like this whole list of things that I had in my mind of what I wanted in my career. And when I looked at what it is to produce events and trade shows and festivals and all that kind of stuff. It ticked so many of the boxes that it surprised me. And I said, I I guess this is what I want to do. As it relates to things like the Clio Awards and, and Shorty Awards, I kind of fell into that as well. I was working for an entertainment company producing the, the Billboard Music Awards and the company that owned Billboard also owned The Hollywood Reporter and Adweek and Clio. And one of the best ways for them to showcase their brand was through awards. So, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with the Billboard charts and Billboard has the R&B Hip Hop Awards and the Country Music Awards and the Latin Music Awards. And I some at some point became an expert in producing award shows, but I also have a background working for an advertising agency And I found a lot of interest in that creative side, and I loved working with agencies. So I started producing award shows for Adweek, and that led to producing the Clio Awards, which led to producing Ken Lion and Shorty Awards and things like that. So it kind of just is one of those strange things where I didn't mean to have a specialty in producing award shows. It's a a kind of a niche space, space, but... There's a lot of quirkiness around award shows and what people react to and what they don't react to. And uh, as you kind of watch human behavior and watch what they do, you learn a lot. And I developed a specialty in award shows. So I try to use what I learn there and how people react and what they want and who they want to be. I use that in terms of how I think about almost every event that I produce. 
Wow, that sounds really interesting. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about some of that quirkiness, about identifying those things that work and those things that don't work so well? Yeah, I mean, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is when I produce the um, Clio Healthcare Awards, one of the things that makes healthcare different from regular advertising is that it's regulated here in the United States by the FDA. And so a lot of people, when you watch those commercials on TV, and they're very vague, and they say things like, if you think you're having lower leg pain, you know, you might benefit from this drug. And they ask you to go to your doctor. And these are really weird things to do. And what I've said to people before is imagine if Nike couldn't actually say what their shoes do. And they couldn't, you know, say they were faster, stronger, better, or any of those kind of things. Because everything that you say from a drug-related perspective has to be proven clinically. And so you wind up with so many rules and regulations that you wind up saying just a whole bunch of generic crap, if I can say <laughs> that word. It's just, you oh, watch yeah. these we're, commercials. We're going to have to censor crap from this one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's one of those things where you just wind up with garbledygook and uh, all, the, all the ads on TV wind up looking the same. So when we started producing the, the healthcare awards, it was really to try to delineate what makes award-winning healthcare ads and what, what kind of hoops that they have to jump through. And one of the things that I found out about the audience is they live in a coat and tie world. It's a very conservative world. The people that work in healthcare advertising spend a lot of time with pharmaceutical companies and it's a lot of rules and regulations. And they do a lot of black tie events. And so when we started to produce the awards, we went and asked them and said, what do you want from a, an award show? And they all said, almost on cue, the same thing. Whatever you do, do not make it a sit-down dinner. Do not be black tie. Do not have a red carpet. What they really wanted is they wanted to be seen like consumer agency creatives, which are very funky, creative, fun people. And what they really wanted was that kind of environment. And so what I've learned throughout my career is don't produce an event for your audience Produce the event for your audience's aspirations. Produce it for who they want to be. So if they want to be treated like a rock star, if they think they, they're rock stars, treat them like rock stars, right? And so in this case, what we did for healthcare was we made it super casual. We even had to, in our invites, show people how to dress, right? It, like <laughs> you know, We had to tell them that you can't wear khakis, you can't wear a blue Oxford, you can't tuck in your shirt, you can't wear penny loafers. Like we, we try to go for every cliche and say, you can't do this. Now, here's some examples of things that you can do. And we basically would take pictures of agency creatives from the consumer side and say, this is what you want to look like. <laughs> and they loved it. They absolutely loved it. And we tried to, you know, with every aspect of the award show, we tried to bring that kind of attitude towards it and say, you know, how do we make this different? How do we not make this a formal event? And it 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 worked extremely well. Wow. No, I can see how that uh, that having that aspirational mindset when you're creating an event can really help resonate with your audience. One thing that is sort of funny to me, Carl, is that you've mentioned that when we were doing our prep call, you said, I couldn't find anybody who dislikes events more than you. And of course, you've been That's involved correct. with events for <laughs> quite some time. And it seems like evidently you have quite a knack for it. So what do you dislike about events? And you know, how does this perspective that you have or had uh, influence your approach to events today? 
Well, there's two ways to look at this. I mean, you know, there's two kinds of events that I hate. It's ones I have to go to for work and ones my friends drag me to. And so they, they kind of had different effects, right? So if my friends are dragging me to an event, I'm worried, is it crowded? You know, is it going to be hot? Or do we have a, a VIP space? You know, like I'm worried about, you know, can I get food? Can I go to the bathroom? All of <laughs> these kind of things that are going to inconvenience my life, right? When it comes to a work event, I'm worried that, you know, they're going to want me to do goofy icebreakers or they're going to want me to do some kind of exercise where you stick a spoon with a string down your shirt and then it's got to go up someone else's shirt. You know, there's all sorts of things that I absolutely hate, trust mm. falls and things like that that people make <laughs> jokes about. But, you know, they still, I think what happens in today's world is, you know, the trust fall has just been modernized, but in essence, it's still a trust fall. You're still with a bunch of people from different offices that you, you may or may not know. And the company's trying to force a social interaction that could not be more awkward. <laughs> and so I take all of these experiences and I, you know, I really enjoy producing events because I'm always thinking, you know, how do I, what would, what do I want? I want a place where I have plenty of room to move around, where it's easy to go to the bathroom, where, you know, there's great food. I don't want rubber chicken. So I try to take all of these things and put them together. And especially with our internal events, it kind of built a little bit of that reputation that, you know, we, we do, um, for instance, I'll give you an example. We do our annual global sales meeting in a different city every year, and we try to celebrate that city. So we went to New Orleans one year, and we wanted to make sure that, you know, we had all of the special uh, New Orleans foods. So we had crawfish etouffee and jambalaya and shrimp, you know, uh, crawfish. Uh, we did a crawfish boil out in the bayou. We wanted to make sure that we had a jazz band come in one day. And so we we really kind of celebrate that and make sure that we have the very best of the best. You know, I would never allow the generic national beer brands to be at one of our events. I make sure that it's always local microbrews. And so we just take it all the way down to the finest details. Every single decision that we make, we try to make sure that you're going to have fantastic food. You're going to be comfortable. We're going to do everything we can to eliminate all those weird social awkward moments so that you don't have to dread going to a company event. Yeah, and I think there was another internal example you shared with me as well. Yes, yes, yeah. Actually, that was really cool. It just so happened that when we were going to be doing our global sales meeting in Reykjavik, which Reykjavik was one of these great locations where um, you wouldn't think about using that as a venue for one of these kind of events. And for us, it was a no-brainer, mostly because half of our people are in Europe and half are in the United States, and Reykjavik is right in the middle. So geographically, in terms of how long the flights were and how much the flights cost, that was a really great choice for us, but also because it's a very unique place. And a lot of people were asking me as they were preparing for the trip, what are you going to do about the season premiere for Game of Thrones? Because you know it's the final season, and everybody was really excited about it. And I was like, oh, wow. Um, I knew that if I didn't do something that everyone could watch Game of Thrones with each other, that they would find ways to sneak out of our event to go watch Game of Thrones. So um, <laughs> I reached out to uh, some of my friends in the entertainment business and partnered with HBO. And HBO Nordic helped us to do a premiere. And we really wanted to just, you know, a lot of the scenes in Game of Thrones is, are filmed in Iceland. So we found a Viking longhouse about 30 miles outside of Reykjavik 
that is, I mean, you feel like you're back in the 1800s and it is, uh, you feel like you're right in the middle of Game of Thrones and you're right in the middle of Viking country. And so we we had a really big dinner and party there. And then we did the premiere in this Viking longhouse and it was amazing. People absolutely loved it. Wow. It's a celebration of the event. It made it a lot of fun. People got into it. We had some of our folks um, wearing Viking outfits. And, uh, I, I, you know, that's the kind of thing. And, and, and it gets me excited when the people I'm producing the events for are excited. Wow. That sounds amazing. I had no idea about the, the Viking longhouse and uh, that whole entire element of it. It sounds very immersive. It's it's great. I, you know, I'm happy to share photos with you at some time. I mean, it's, <laughs> it was a lot of fun. You know, it's got like the grass on the roof on the outside and everything. And it's we even hired a bunch of Viking strongmen, which that's one of those things where I thought that might be really goofy to hire a bunch of strongmen. But the production company that I was working with in Iceland said, don't no, trust me. You know, people really like this. I said, oh, all right, I'm going to trust you. And it was hilarious. You know, these guys what, came. What did with, the Vikings do? <laughs> Well, they, they, it sounds, this is one of those things that it sounds stupid, but it was <laughs> really funny. They brought in various sizes of what you, you can only describe as, as small boulders, right? These giant rocks. And I, I don't know how much they weighed. I mean, I think, you know, the smallest one was 150 pounds. You know, the biggest one might've been 400, 500 pounds. And these guys would pick people out of the audience who wanted to participate in this and see if they could, they showed them the techniques so you wouldn't hurt your back and whatnot. And everyone kind of gathered around in a circle and would watch various people try to pick these things up. And as stupid <laughs> as it sounds, it was hilarious. Everybody loved it. It was a great thing to kind of uh, get everybody kind of rallied around one thing. It sounds like a far cry from the uh, typical trustful. <laughs> I hope so. No, I it hope sounds so. I mean, like, um, I, that, that's that's my dreaded moment that anyone would ever accuse me yeah. of hosting a, a trust fall. Well, yeah, no, th this this included giant boulders, strong men, and uh, feats of strength. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, very cool. Exactly, I love it. So, you know, whether you're looking at an internal event uh, like, say, this Game of Thrones experience in Reykjavik, or you're looking at an external event, how are you thinking about evaluating the success? There's a lot of ways that you can look at it. I mean, the most important thing really, especially when we're dealing with um, events that we're doing for clients is I go to the sales team and I ask them, what, what are the goals that you're trying to achieve? And almost always there are goals in that quarter that they're trying to achieve that we want to have so many implementations with our clients, so many upgrades with our clients. And in order to do that, we have to do the numbers backwards. So let's say, for instance, we want to implement a new technology and we want 10 clients to take on this new technology in this particular quarter. In order to do that, we're going to have to set up, say, 50 meetings. And in order to set up 50 meetings, we're going to have to reach out to 200 clients. And so we kind of do the numbers backwards from there. And so whatever the event is and however it's organized, we start measuring the interactions, the number of clients we're inviting to the event, the number of clients that have RSVP'd to the event, the number of clients that have accepted the meetings, and then we follow the outcomes through to the end to see how many implementations we get. Got it. So it sounds like there's a great deal of communication and coordination among different teams. Yeah, you know, and I, I think the example I gave you is pretty clear cut. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. But I think a lot of times they're not so clear cut. 
And, and people kind of say this, well, I don't really know how to measure the success of this event because it's not like we have a product that we're selling a particular number of, or it can't be tracked because of the way in which it's sold. And so what you have to do is you have to take your internal stakeholders, the people that you are producing the event for, and ask them, what are your goals? What do you want to get out of this event? So it could be anything from there's an education that we need to achieve, or we need to do team bonding. And I will ask people, okay, team bonding, how do you define that? And it's really about getting to the bottom of it, because if you have an agreed language and an agreed goal, and you find a way in which, okay, if something's too nebulous to be measured, you have to continue the conversation until you find something that can be measured. How do you define that? If you say, well, I just need everyone to be, you know, I need people to network. How do you define networking? Right? right. Because it's a little bit different for everybody. You have to be able to set yourself up for success here. Because if my version of networking is different than, say, my chief revenue officer's version of networking, we're going to have a problem. Because we could come out of an event, I could think it's very successful, and he doesn't. So it's important that if I'm producing an event for the sales team, that I understand from sales leadership what they think networking is and how we define that and how we measure that. You know, Throughout your career, it seems like there have been a lot of these instances where you're working with other stakeholders, be they internal or external, to sort of drive specific initiatives or outcomes. One thing that really stands out to me from our previous conversation is your focus on diversity in events and specifically in gender equity. And I know this was a really big focus with you in the past with the Clio Awards and uh, moving forward from there and some other different events. Specifically, I know that you, you shared a statistic that 3% of chief creative officers worldwide are women, only 3%. And I know that this speaks to some of the, a lot of the work that we need to do in the agency world, but there also is a huge gap in the tech world as well. So could you share with us a little bit about how throughout your career you have worked towards gender equity in the event experience? Yeah, and this is definitely something that started with the Clio Awards, and you're right with that 3% number. A woman by the name of Cindy Gallup started an organization called the 3% Org, and it was all about that statistic that came out at one time. It, that statistic may have changed slightly now, but I think it's still pretty dang close that roughly 3% of all chief creative officers are women. And in the agency world, that's a challenge when when you're the Clio Awards or Can Lions or the Shorty Awards. When you put together a jury and you say, okay, well, I, I want a jury that's 50% women because we want to achieve some kind of equality here, but only 3% of them are chief creative officers. It's very difficult to put together a jury because that was one of our rules is that you had to be a chief creative officer in order to serve on one of our juries. But this is one of those things where you have to um, be willing to bend a little in order to achieve your goals. And you have to kind of say to yourself, is it more important that every single person that serves in a jury be a chief creative officer, or is it more important to achieve gender equality? In our particular case with the Clio Awards, we thought it's much more important to achieve gender equality. After all, the end product of advertising is going out to everybody in the world, right? Half the world is male and half the world is female. And so it's kind of ridiculous to have only men judging the quality of advertising, right? So in order for us to achieve that, that a higher number than 3%, we had to change the rules. So the rules being that it's chief creative officer, we said, okay, we'll take an executive creative director or we'll take a creative director if we have to. 
Second is we used to say that with the men on the jury that you can only serve once every three years. And we would say, okay, well, for the women, they can serve every year. And so we kept having to kind of bend our rules a little bit in order to make sure that we got gender equality. There was a little bit of squawking at first. Are we compromising the quality and experience of people on the jury because we're bending those rules? And the thing is, is that the women were simply not getting the opportunities in their careers to achieve those titles, to be in those positions. But it was clear once they got on the jury, they had every bit the same amount of experience and quality of experience that the men had. And it changed the dynamic. And the men really appreciated as well, because it's not just a bunch of guys sitting around talking about this. It elevated the conversation. It made it more sophisticated. And we got a lot of kudos in the industry for doing that. And I think this year, in fact, every year we move that number up. So the first year we we really pushed on this initiative, we had about 10% women. The following year it was 15, and then it was 20. This year in particular was the first year that the Clio Awards achieved a 50% male-female gender equal jury. Mm-hmm. And uh, even though I'm not involved with Clio anymore, you know, kudos to Nicole Purcell, um, who is uh, the president of the Clio Awards. And she did a wonderful job of driving that initiative. And we're facing that same issue in technology right now, that we have such a predominance of of men in the industry, especially at senior levels, that when we're putting together our summits, we go out of our way to find women in the industry that can speak to the issues that we are wanting to host. And it has been nothing but good news. It, we, you know, that that thought that because there's not enough women in the industry that you're not going to have the most experienced person on stage, that's totally false. When we put them on stage, they have done absolutely fantastic. They have all the same experience as men, but they're not getting the same opportunities in their careers. And so we're starting on our side and doing what we can. Aside from what we already discussed, do you have any other pieces of advice for working towards diversity and uh, gender equality? It's got to be a goal. As simple as that, if you don't acknowledge the difference, if you don't take note of what your current situation is and and how far you need to go, you can't measure whether you're making success or not. And there is going to be pushback. There's always going to be pushback because in order to get gender equality, in order to get racial equality, in order to get these things recognized on stage, Sometimes you have to bend the rules a little bit to make sure that you put those people on stage. Because, you know, if somebody were to say in your organization, here's who we want on stage. We want people with these titles. In some cases, they say, we only want C-level people. If I look at my own industry here of ad tech and say, we're only going to take C-level people on a particular panel, I know for almost a fact, you know, that we're going to have a lot of problems finding women to put on that panel because there's so few women in C-level positions in ad tech. So we have to be able to push back internally and be brave about those sort of things and say, wait a second, you know, I think it's also one of our goals that we need to have equal representation on stage. And so if that means that it's not a C-level person, we're going to need to do that. I love it. And if you could give yourself one piece of advice earlier in your career, what would it be and why? Oh, good God. Uh, that's a tough one. I, you know what? Honestly, I would say give in to what you do well. I've experienced this with 
a lot of my personal friends and even people that work for me, it's if you're doing something, you think you want to be doing something else, you know, because I think everybody has that. It's like, you know, there you've you probably heard the saying that, you know, actors want to be rock stars and rock stars want to be sports stars and sports stars want to be, you know, actors, you know, and it kind of goes in a circle like that. I think everybody kind of has, you know, something that they wish that they could do. And what you have to do is take a look at what are you good at? And for me, I'm good at producing events. I'm good at producing experiences. And I've definitely thought, you know, I want to be at the, you know, an advertising agency. I want to, you know, work in entertainment. There's a lot of different things that I've wanted to do, but I keep coming back to what I'm good at. And the more I focus on what I'm good at, I get a lot of satisfaction out of doing a great job. And that at the end of the day is probably the most important thing. So if I had to give myself advice when I was younger is give in early and do what you're good at. Love it. Okay. And the final question I have for you is amidst all of the work that you're doing, how do you stay inspired and keep your creative instincts fresh? I think I do what anybody else does. You know, like I said, I hate events. If I go to an event, if someone drags me to an event and I really like it, I give kudos and I say, well, what do they do that, that, that I, that I didn't do or what ideas did they come up with that I haven't come up with? I do get in inspired by the creativity that people put into that. And I mean, that goes from everything. One of my favorite places in the world, by the way, and this is going to sound terrible, but I do like Disney. And the reason is when you create experiences, there is nobody on earth that does it better. And so if I ever go with friends, that one part of it is, you know, of course you get the childhood memories from Disney, but when you look at it from a professional standpoint and look at how they're creating experiences, you just say to yourself, wow, this is as good as it gets. It's amazingly inspiring. Cool. Well, that's it for today's conversation. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you, Carl, for joining us today. I wanted to share a brief word on our conversation around diversity. Recently, the team at Bizabo used AI and machine learning to analyze 60,000 event speakers over a five-year period from 2013 to 2018. The resulting report found that only one-third of speakers at events are women. One-third. There's definitely a lot of room for action, not just in tech or agencies, but in events as a whole. We'd love to hear your thoughts. What are some successes around diversity in events that you've seen? Where else would you like to see this conversation go? Are there any guests that you think we should have on the show to talk about it? Drop us a line at in-person at and let us know. Okay, it's been a pretty wide-reaching conversation today, from the politics of dog parks to the art of creating award shows to diversity at Disneyland. If you think any of these topics would speak to someone in your network, please help us spread the word by sharing the episode with your colleagues and friends or by leaving a glowing review in iTunes. Until next time, I'm Brandon Raffleson, and this has been in person.